Hey guys, it's Albert. We got a great show for you this week. We're going to try something a little different with our guests, but I think it's going to be a great way for you guys to digest everything that happened over the last week in free agency. We've got takeaways on quarterbacks and we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. We're in that in-between time right now in the NFL calendar. Big deals of free agency. Those are in the books. The initial rush is gone. Free agency is not over, but most of the big names have found new homes or staying in their old homes. And it's not quite draft season yet, but the big pro days are starting to pop up there on the NFL calendar. Alabama's pro day was Tuesday. BYU's Zach Wilson will throw on Friday. Next week, Justin Fields throws at Ohio State. So it's the Albert Breer Show. We're taking you through that sort of in-between part of the calendar. And we've got a great lineup of guests in this week to help us wrap up free agency. Really, we're doing something different with the guests this week. It's more of a roundtable format. I think you guys are going to like it. I'm going to want your feedback on it. And we're also going to get to your questions in the six-pack. But We start where we always do with the takeaways. And my first takeaway for this final week of March I think it's impossible to have any sort of strong take on the Deshaun Watson situation because if you do, you're either A, you're indicting Watson, or you're B, not taking what are very serious charges seriously enough. And so I think for all of us, when you're looking at you know the totality of what Deshaun Watson is embroiled in right now, the best thing for all of us to do is to take a step back and let the legal process play itself out. Um, you know, like I said, like Deshaun Watson has earned the benefit of the doubt um, in his time as a professional, in his time as a high-profile college player at Clemson. You know, at the same time, we're talking about like what the lawyer Tony Busby is now saying is going to be 24 women. So you don't want to discount what they're saying. So like I said, the best thing to do is to just sort of – I think just sort of stay in the middle for right now and let the facts come out, let the process play out. I think the trouble now from a football standpoint, again, this is trivial compared to the other stuff. It's trivial compared to Watson's reputation. It's trivial compared to the lives of these women. But, you know, because we're talking about him because he's a football player, there's a football element to this. I think the tricky thing about this is that I just think it makes it impossible to pull off a big deal for him. And here's why. If you're the Texans, the only way that you would part with a 25-year-old franchise quarterback who's got the potential to be a top two or three quarterback in the league, I don't think he's there yet, but he's got the potential to get there, is if you get a historic haul in return. If you're another team, until you have clarity in the situation, it's really, really hard to yield a historic haul. And so, you know, I I think at this point where the Texans haven't been willing to even talk about trading him, now they kind of can't. I mean, now I think it's just sort of put them in a place where they can't really do anything with him. And I think it pushes the pause button on all of this until we have clarity on the situation going forward. And so um, just a tough situation in general, a sad situation in general. And I, I just I don't know how to have a take on it other than it puts you know, a sort of a freeze on what was happening with his football situation before all this happened. Takeaway number two, the other quarterback that we've been talking about for a lot of the, the offseason, Russell Wilson. 
and we're starting to see drips and drabs of how this whole thing is going to play out. And I've told you guys before, I've said this before in several places, I think that the likelihood right now is that he's fine. He's signed his final deal in Seattle. However, he does have three years left on that contract. So then the question becomes what the Seahawks do going forward. And I think over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten tells on the way that the Seahawks are going to handle this. On one side of the coin, they listened to Russell Wilson. Said he wanted a big-time front-line offensive line. He didn't want them to go to the bargain bin, reclamation projects, low-round draft picks. He wanted them to take a big swing at an offensive lineman. They did that. They traded for Gabe Jackson. And so they're going to insert Gabe Jackson in that offensive line, which already has Dwayne Brown in it. They still have the ability to dip into what's going to be a deep draft pool of offensive linemen. So, you know, they've signaled to Russell Wilson, hey, we heard you. We're helping to, we're, we're helping to, we're, we're trying to take care of that situation. So that's one end of it. The other end of it, John Schneider still showed up at, at Trey Lance's pro date, North Dakota State. And I know John Schneider has always gone to the big quarterback pro days. Got it, right? But in this situation with how sensitive it was, like, and how just about everybody has knowledge that John Schneider popping up at Josh Allen's pro day in 2018, ruffled feathers. If they were really tiptoeing around Russell Wilson, he may skip that pro day, especially because they don't have a first round pick. So if we add those two things up, the Gabe Jackson move and the, and John Schneider's presence in Fargo, what do you get to me? Like when I look at those two things added together, it tells me Russell, we heard you. Russell, we're going to do our best to put the best team around you. Russell, we're not kowtowing to you. And we're not going to hand over the keys of the organization to you. And so that makes this interesting going forward because I do think they're listening because they involved him in the offensive coordinator search. They got his sign off on Shane Waldron. They've addressed the offensive line. The third thing that he wanted a part, he wanted to kind of, the third box he wanted to check was having more knowledge of the long-term vision for the franchise. And maybe he's gotten that. But I think what's pretty clear is they're not going to say how high every time Russell says jump. So they're going to work with him, but this isn't going to be Russell Wilson's show. Takeaway number three, we all saw what the New England Patriots did. Um, And as you guys might have seen for my Monday column, I talked to Patriots owner Robert Kraft. And here's my biggest takeaway from that discussion. He's very uncomfortable with this. Because this flies in the face of how they've done business for 20 years. They've never splurged this way. The closest thing would probably be 2007. And I've been around that team for 15 years now. The closest thing would be 2007. And I was covering the team at that point. They brought in Randy Moss. They brought in Adalis Thomas. They brought in Wes Welker. They brought in Dante Stallworth. They brought in Sammy Morris. They really, really, really like said, okay, like this core that we won three Super Bowls with is getting a little bit older. We want to take advantage of where we are. That's different than this. Because that team had on it Mike Vrabel, Teddy Bruschi, Richard Seymour, Vince Wilfork, Ty Warren, Asante Samuel, Matt Light, Dan Copen, Logan Mankins, Tom Brady. Like you look at that roster, and that roster was just in need of a couple things to put it over the top. The reason why I think Robert Kraft's a little less comfortable with this is it's not complementing the existing core. It's building a new core. 
And so I think with Robert Kraft's trepidation in saying this is all going to work, here's what you can read into it. To me, I think he knows, I think the football people know, that this only works if they draft well. This only works if they rebound in that phase of the team building process. Because almost, I, I, there's been, I don't know that there's been a single team that's been built this way, that's been built through the first couple days of free agency. There have been teams that have been success, successful splurging in that area, but, it's be, but, but they've done it to complement an existing core. And like you look at like the Eagles and how aggressive they've been and the Rams and how aggressive they've been and how aggressive those teams were when they had quarterbacks on rookie contracts. Why did that happen? Well, it happened because they had the room for the rookie contracts and they had cores that were growing up together and there were strength in those cores. And so this is different for that reason. And so I think now it's incumbent on the Patriots to rebound from a draft perspective because that's where the core is going to come from. And I think if they're back contending for Super Bowls, two, three years from now. I think it's because they drafted really well in 2021. They drafted really well in 2022. And the young players they have on the team now have really come along. And I'm talking about guys like Kyle Duggar, Chase Winovich, Mike Wenu, like the guys that are already there. Like to me, like that has to be the core of the team, which will put guys like Hunter Henry and John o. Smith and Matthew Judon in a better position to succeed. Takeaway take number four, the New York Giants were another team that was a spender. And I think if you look at what they've done to me, the, the, the kind of core of what they've done to me, this was about getting answers on Daniel Jones. And I know they spent some on the defensive side of the ball too. They re-signed Leonard Williams. They brought in a Dory Jackson. They, They've done things on defense to try and shore up that side of the ball. But if you look at like the offense right now, and you look at the amount of capital that's been sunk into that offense, right? You have high draft picks like Saquon Barkley and Andrew Thomas. You have guys that, that they've developed internally that they've paid like Sterling Shepard. And you have high-end free agents that they brought in like now Kenny Galladay and like Nate Solder. And I didn't even mention Evan Ingram, another first-round pick. So, like, you look at the Kenny Galladay move, and that was a dice roll. And we went over that in the Monday column, too. And I'm sure you guys understand that. There was some stuff from the end in Detroit that wasn't great that the Giants had to wrap their heads around. And they went from really considering just walking away from him altogether to, after the visit, signing him to a huge deal. And the reason why they did it, they need to get answers on Daniel Jones. Because after year three, that's when you make your decision on the quarterback. Because that's where the fifth-year option decision comes, and that's where he's eligible for a long-term deal. And it's like where the Bills are with Josh Allen, the Ravens are with Lamar Jackson, and the Browns are with Baker Mayfield now. That's where the Giants will be next year with Daniel Jones. You can go one of three ways when you're at that point. You either decline the fifth-year option, which all of a sudden signals to everybody you've got no belief in the guy. You can exercise the option and not extend the guy, which puts him on notice. You know, it's like where Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota were for their last two years in, in, in Tampa and Tennessee, or you extend him. And so that decision is going to be facing the Giants next year when they've got to sort of signal to the world what they think of Daniel Jones. 
and this is going to be the best way to get them answers on him. The team, like building the team around him, is going to be the best way to get answers on him. Finally, takeaway number five: everybody is looking for a cap recovery and the way their teams have built. And this will be a great segue into our guests because we're going to talk a lot to them about this. 2022 isn't going to be it. I think 2022, chances are maybe you get back to where the cap is flat again, flat to 2020 again, where maybe it's closer to 200 million. But I do not think it's going to jump until 2023. And I say that because I know teams are planning that way. Teams are planning as if the cap is going to go up in a very big way in 2023, which is why you see a bunch of deals that are going to have money. Like the Bucks did two deals. Delvante David and Tom Brady that dump a bunch of dead cap money into 2023. I think there's a lot of there's a, there's a, there's this feeling across the league that it's not going to go up gradually starting next year so much as it's going to go up gradually starting in 2023 because that's when the TV deals kick in and owners have been reluctant to borrow back against future years too much. Um, and so like my guess would be you're looking at your team's balance sheets if you're that you know sicko of a fan to do that and you'll see that there's a lot of planning towards 2023 we will get to our special guests that's right we've got four of them right after this All right, I'm really excited to do this because um, you know, it was an idea I kind of came up with on the fly, but these guys were nice enough to, to jump on with me. And it's uh, you know, really for the more prominent agents in the business. Uh, and I wanted to try to give everybody out there an idea of what free agency was like from guys who were actually in it over the last few weeks. And it's important to remember one of the guys just reminded me free agency isn't over. There's still a lot of guys that are out there um, trying to find jobs. And so um, I'm going to introduce each of the guys and uh, a couple of guys that they had out there. Uh, we've got Mike McCartney, who had Joe Tooney on the market. We have Brandon Parker, who actually had a guy franchised, Alan Robinson. Um, we have Sean Kiernan, who had Troy Hill. I think Cordero Patterson's still out there, right, Sean? And, um, and then we have Dave Kanner, who had Morgan Fox and Sam Tevy out there. Um, so here's what those guys are signed. Huh? They're, you had them out there. Yeah, they're signed. Oh. I know. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We're updated on your guy. Um, so like, let's start here. Um, and Brandon, let's start with you um, because you did have um, your guy franchise. I, I want to know how you guys approached your clients. Um, and, you know, I think everybody kind of like looked at this as like, like, my God, this is going to be, you know, a bloodbath and they're going to be, you know, a ton of street free agents and prices aren't going to be where they normally would be. Um, how'd you guys approach that with your, with your clients, Brandon, let's start with you. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, I think, well, first of all, I actually had two players franchise, uh, this year, uh, Leonard Williams was another one who we had right. franchised. So, um, you know, I, I personally, and we, our approach, uh, was really no different than what it, it is in any year. Uh, because I think that it's probably good insight for, you know, listeners and for people to understand that, you know, we kind of have a thing in our group where, you know, the NFL, especially when it comes to free agency is very top heavy, uh, just like, you know, our country. And I think it's important to understand that the league is there's the haves and then there's the have nots. Uh, and then there's a middle class, which is seems to be increasing each year. The middle class keeps getting large. I'm, I'm sorry, decreasing smaller and smaller. So the way you approach a guy who would be in that have category 
um, is almost the exact same as you would approach him in any other year, uh, as opposed to guys, you know, that might be on the lower end of that of the spectrum or closer to that middle class. You know, those are the guys that really see the the cut and the hurt uh, on the on, when it comes to uh, their salaries or the contracts that they can potentially command in the market when it comes to free agency. So I think that, you know, those type of guys, you kind of got to give it to them real. Of course, you got to always be honest, but I think that that's really the only difference. But as far as, you know, those guys on the other side, it's more so don't listen to the noise because, you know, as history shows us, you know, the, the guys that have the leverage, leverage get paid in free agency. It's just the way that it's been. And I, it seems to be have worked out that way this year as well. I'm going to go right on down the line in the screens I see here then. Dave, um, those have to be hard hard discussions to have, right? Like like where you're trying to be honest with your client about what their market's going to be, knowing that for certain guys, it's going to be different than it is for others. Yeah, I think that Brandon makes a really valid point that I'm not one of the agents that had a franchise guy this year like the other guys did um, or you know one of the bigger ticket free agents. I think all of my guys' deals were in the – four to seven million dollar a year range and and that's the market that really got massacred uh for lack of a better word and is still getting decimated across the board because the smart teams are waiting it out there are certain teams like the colts that didn't even make a transaction the first week you know dallas obviously did their big spend with with dak and you've got the smarter franchises that had a lot of money that really held on to it. And then you had the newer franchises and I call them newer because the people that are running them are, are new in the building, which is urban and Jacksonville, which then new England, which went out of character and spent like, you know, drunken sailors on a Vegas bachelor trip. <laughs> um, and so, and, and maybe not as we've seen, and you know, I, I know this going back to the giants in 2016. Uh, I'm actually shocked that they spent as much money as they did with Leonard and, and with the guy yesterday, uh, the corner, uh, Dory Jackson, Jackson, and and the other deal that they did with Kenny Galladay, we learned in 2016 when they did my deal with Olivier Vernon, and they did another D tackle deal with Snacks, and they did a Doris Jenkins. I haven't seen any Super Bowl trophies in New York or even playoff wins, so it, it was shocking that the Tisch family and the Mara family would authorize another you know 200 million dollar cash spend um, like they did in 2016, but. You know, the market's hungry and, and teams want to win. And some teams think that you have to win by spending a lot of money in free agency. Some teams think you have to spend by piecing things together slowly and patiently. And some teams think wait as long as possible and, you know, add a lot of pieces to the puzzle that maybe don't fit as well, but you're not going to be in cap, you know, decimation annually like certain teams like the Saints and the Seahawks and some other teams. All right, Sean, your approach with your clients, um, you know, based on the differences in the market this year? Um, you know, kind of similar to David, I kind of had that middle group of four to seven type range. And really how I approached it was like a game of musical chairs. In a normal year, especially like in a corner market with Troy Hill, you'd have, you know, eight to 10 guys that would get that six million plus type deal. And the way I viewed it was, the same like deals are going to be there. There's just going to be less of them. And like, I felt coming into this thing that the offensive line corners um, and what was the third position? There were three positions I felt were going to do well. in pass free agency. And I thought everybody else was and pass rush. Right. And 
everybody else I thought was going to get kind of crushed by this thing. And, you know, I think that's kind of what we saw. You saw the pass rushers come off on the first day. The corner market, there wasn't really the top-heavy guys that you've had over the last couple of years. So the guys that got the 12, 13, 14, I really didn't think anybody was worth more than $14 million a year in that grouping, just based on the past history of guys. Um, and you really saw it from kind of the, you know, five to $10 million group there. Everybody probably got a million dollars less, except for maybe Darby who ended up in Denver. I thought he was a little high based on what I thought everybody would be, but everybody else was kind of right there. Mike, um, you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Mike, you were in a little no, bit. No, and then, you know, yeah. Mike's going to talk about the offensive line. <laughs> that was the other position that I thought did well. Right, Mike. Like, so you were in a little bit of a different situation in that you had a guy who had previously been tagged. So did you have to temper his expectations or were you, did you have a pretty good feeling that he was going to be an outlier this year? Uh, I definitely thought he was going to be an outlier because it, going into free agency, he had one good center, one good guard, and one good tackle. Uh, what I did with Joe Tooney was prior to free agency, we spent a lot of times, a lot of time talking about teams and putting them in tiers. And our tier A were the teams that these are the teams he'd be excited to play with, right? Or play for. And then tier B, you know, maybe not as excited. Tier C, they better bring every dollar possible. <laughs> so <laughs> when you get to free agency, though, you want a tier A uh, team to come after you. So um, you know, this was a unique year because we didn't know what the salary cap was going to be till Thursday prior. Uh, there was no uh, mention of money from anybody, not even like, hey, we're thinking about this range. So we went in really not knowing where the money was, but we did know that he was the top guy. So honestly, I was I was anxious this year, um, even though I had the top one, Kansas City. Uh, reached out to Joe or to me right away. And, but I also was worried about Trent Williams. So I told Joe right away, I said, we have a window to secure a deal. And I don't want to drag this one out because I don't want to lose Kansas city if they're in our tier a and have them at the same time be, be negotiating with Trent Williams. I didn't know the pace he was going to go. And I would have been sick to my stomach and we lost Kansas City because I dragged it out. So I felt this is and I rarely feel like this in free agency. Usually I'm pretty patient. I felt a sense of urgency, even though I had the top guy. I in my mind, I had to get it done quickly. And I told Brant uh, Tillis, the cap guy for Kansas City, you know, I said, hey, you know, after we had a few conversations, I said, Brant, uh, we're going to lock in and try and get this done. You got to come up. And but if you do, we'll get this done and we'll we'll do it quick. And we got it done by two fifty nine my time, so under four hours. And I was honestly relieved. So Albert, that's a great point Mike brings up. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if Sean or Brandon felt this way this year, but I felt, especially with the limited number of teams that might be in the market, one to spend money, and two for my specific clients and maybe their specific clients, this year you had to go. Like if you had a deal. You didn't have the luxury of waiting for maybe three or four other suitors to come to play. And, and this year is the only year I've ever done this in 25 years of being an agent. I spent an inordinate amount of time, especially yesterday with Tevi's deal, which isn't a record-setting, amazing, incredible deal. I had nothing. I had the Chargers to go back on that qualifying minimum deal 
where clearly they didn't love him or they wouldn't have done anything. And I had to generate a market for him. And so I did something I've never done. And I don't know if Sean or, or Michael use this against me or Brandon down the line, but I actually text messaged general managers saying, hey, are you out on this guy? Are you are you done? Like, And I remember John Schneider yesterday, it took him like five hours to respond to on the Sam Tevy text that no, he wasn't out. And by the time I had... I'd already agreed to terms and, and the kid was on a plane to Indianapolis. So it's the first year in 25 years. I actually had to almost go as fast as possible for fear that you were going to lose the money, not even just the suitor. Maybe the team still wanted the guy, but the money was going multiple places. Carolina was specifically at one point in time, we thought we lost the Morgan Fox deal because they went and got uh, Hassan Riddick and, you know, obviously different players, different positions, but the money is going to go away sooner or later, especially with the cash budgets that these owners gave to teams this year. It's way, way down. Yeah, so I, I want to get into the cash thing because that part's interesting to me too. But how much of this is like, like, and any of you guys can take this, um, how much of it is like like what, what Mike was talking about, what Dave jumped on, and Brandon, Sean, feel free to jump on this one. Like how much of it was, well, if it's not you, like, like if we're not going to sign you, then there's this other guy over here we're just going to go sign, and there's not competition for him. So we're going to be good either way, take it or leave it. Was that sort of – I think that's what you guys are getting at, right? Like, so, Sean, Brandon, do you guys experience that at all? Like, you felt this pressure because you look at, you know, like in the group of musical chairs that I had, I felt there were 10 guys kind of in my range. And then, like I said, in a normal year, 8 to 10 of those guys get these deals. And like Dave said, you had one team – like you were feeling pretty good about yourself. It took me, you know, three and a half days to drum up that one team where I felt like we were moving in the right direction. And like Dave, I had the Rams sitting there, like, you know, Les calling me every morning on his way to work, just being like, all right, I'm your, I'm your safety valve here. Like, just let me know. Like, I got this. Like, I want to get Troy back here. But at the same point, you got to take the money if you can get it. And, you know, that's the way this thing worked this year is, there weren't three to four to five teams kind of fishing around, even just a little bit less than the deal you end up getting. And that's usually what you see. Brandon? Um, you know, <clears throat> I don't know that this speaks specifically to the question, but a couple, both David and Mike spoke to this a little bit. And I think, you know, I guess pressure is probably the best word, but in, in general this year, it just kind of felt like, more of the agents and more of the teams front offices were all kind of on an island. It was a lot of, uh, it was just very unpredictable. There were, there weren't a lot of trends and we didn't see, you know, typically you'll see a run on a certain position at a certain time. Um, whereas, you know, the wide receiver, Kenny Galladay, I believe what he signed two or three days ago, yeah. um, the top guy on the market outside of, you know, maybe uh, a couple guy or a couple of the guys who were franchise tag. So for me, it was the, it's, you know, you really got to swallow your pride in general and focus on the fact that what, you know, in a normal year, you don't have to necessarily worry to worry about uh, your downside so much as you did this year, because teams, you know, one team might be telling you, you know, you might not ever hear a mention of cap or cash issues, right? When you're negotiating, other teams might be, that might be what they lead with. You know, I had a couple of teams tell me, Hey, look, we are literally, we're broke. We got no money. And then, a couple of hours later, I see them sign some player at a different position for a whole bunch of money. So <laughs> that is so, so annoying. 
Yeah. In there, done that. Uh, In there, done that, Brandon. So you have that. And then, you know, I think another huge component in our, that has changed our business in general, but I felt it in free agency this year. I mean, obviously, because the Bears and Giants fans being the two of those guys are the guys that uh, I represent are two of the you know, more high-profile guys on each of those teams. Their fans don't ever uh, cease to let us know how they feel about certain moves at times. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm literally on the phone. We were wrapping up the deal with the Giants, with Leonard, uh, which we've been working on for a while. But, you know, we we kind of knew both sides the entire time we were going to get a deal done. I mean, we, we were both very motivated to get a deal done the entire time. Uh, and as we're kind of finishing up things and getting ready to send the deal over to the player – go through the, you know, that process, my phone just starts blowing up with, you know, friends and media people asking me about uh, this report that came out from one of the NFL Network guys that, you know, Leonard Williams and the Giants are so far apart. Uh, a deal, uh, not like they're not even, I think it said, quote, they're not even close to a deal uh, when we're actually finished with the deal. And on top of that, they're talking <laughs> about how Leonard is holding up the Giants from getting all these players and then Lo and behold, not only is the, does Leonard's deal get done, they end up signing three more players after that, all that significant money. So um, the media in general this year, there was a lot of reporting going on. More NFL or insiders calling my phone this year than ever before. Guys that I, I never heard of. And you kind of got to <laughs> answer the call because you don't know if it's a team calling you, some, you know, sometimes. So it was a it was just in general. Uh, it was interesting this year. And I think I swallowed my pride even more so in terms of making the practical, rational decisions once we um, had come to a, you know that decision instead of waiting around. Wait, Brandon, you said something interesting there, though. Like sure. the people, like you said, like like on Twitter, fans will like are fans actually hunting you guys down? Like Bianca's um, like I like, say, I know they comment on the players, right? Like so, they're going to go comment to the players. Are fans now at the point where on Twitter they're actually hunting all of you guys down when they're 100%. upset with their player? <laughs> well, I, I get a lot of fans wanting me to sign every player to the Cowboys, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, yeah, I think when you go through stuff like franchise tags and you know you got receivers and that sort of thing, it only it's just things can spread so fast these days. Um, and they're not all negative either. So I don't want to you know because I actually care about the fans and I'm a fan myself, but. You know, I'm not looking at those things in the middle of um, trying to get deals done. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those reports, when they come from somebody that has a verified badge, people automatically assume that well, that source or whatever is an accurate one. But I thought that was kind of funny. I'm like, I'm reading a report saying we're not even <laughs> close as we're closing the deal done. I thought that was hey. funny. Didn't hey. appreciate the report either. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dave, it sounds like you have a, you have some stories there then, too, on fans well, hunting I, you down. I, I mean, I'm I'm obviously on Twitter probably ten times more than everybody. Mike, you're probably the closest to me on Twitter, and that's just to refute the Dallas Cowboys stuff in your in your second life with your other family in Texas um, and your other organization that you work for besides Priority Sports. But without you know, getting a check, by the way, the, the, the fans, <laughs> the most, the thing that I've seen the most this year, and Brian McIntyre, you know, our chief analytics officer, and you know him well, Albert begs me not to do it and I, I just can't resist I don't know why is the comments and I don't know if it's because people are hiding behind the internet or because it's Twitter which is a cesspool to begin with but man there's so much anger and hatred in our fan bases like I feel like it's it's you know obviously it's vented at the owners and Roger Goodell 
But I made a comment on Twitter. I don't know if you guys saw it the other day, but I basically said, like, it's laughable that we ate this horrible, shitty, disgraceful CBA. And four days into free agency, really two days, actually, Wednesday and Thursday, the the owners and everyone in the universe announces this TV deal that's the biggest in the history of global sports. And players are literally taking 30 to 50 percent on the dollar to play the sport and risk injury every day. And not one fan, not one fan out of thousands of comments backed the players. It was shocking to me. Like, it pissed me off. You could tell I'm animated right now because I'm aggravated about it. It really bothers me because I don't think the average fan appreciates what these men put themselves through. I don't think the average fan understands how hard this sport is. I get all sports are hard, but this one is guaranteed injury. This one is guaranteed termination of your life sooner than people that live a normal life and a normal existence. And so... For me, it, it, there's such venom and vitriol in the Twitterverse uh, that it really had me recoiled last week during free agency uh, at the negativity towards these men that play this sport and the support of billionaire owners who would literally not piss on these fans if they were caught on fire. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. That's a, Brandon, that's- you laugh, but you know I'm not lying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if I – yeah, I – Honestly, I got to double down on uh, with David there, man. I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, being that I kind of grew up in this thing as a kid, I had a chance to kind of look at it from the outside in. And I, I did. I was you, you want to have some empathy for the fans. I think it's not so much that they don't appreciate the players. I think it's more so, you know, they're looking at their own current situation. And, you know, a lot of us out here in America are just trying to survive, trying to stay afloat. So when they look at a player not wanting 15 million and wanting 20 million. Of course, I think that that can, that can be received one way, but, and what the, the toughest part is these, these owners in the front office uh, members, they're not required to speak to the media. They don't have social media channels. So all of the hate that the fans send to the team Twitter channel, you know, the owners aren't seeing that the owners aren't, that doesn't hit them. Right. So the players, it really has become very difficult. And the minute a player opens his mouth on Twitter, no matter what he says, if he's in a situation where um, that's not so good with the con with his contract standing with the team or the business at all, the fans typically tend to assume that it's a negative tone. And because it's just words, you can't really interpret tone. But, you know, I just think if people could remember that it's a, it's a fight between millionaires and billionaires. So uh, if anybody's the, the underdog, it will be the players. So like, then how do you all right so like that's an interesting point that both you guys make like Sean let's let's turn to you Sean then like how do you tell your players to handle that like you know what i mean like cuz i'm sure like anybody out they're human like they're probably pissed like they want to go out like and especially when you're in like a you know a situation where maybe you're a free agent like or you're negotiating a contract <clears throat> i mean that's not only your future it's your family's future like how do you tell how do you advise your players to digest that and do you guys actually like like prep them for hey it could get ugly it's not going to be good for you if you react to it yeah i mean i'm a little different from people in that i try to lay low and be quiet you know especially me personally and that's kind of the recommendation i have most times with the uh um with teams like you posted something last night on scott pioli 
Albert, that I thought was really relevant, which is like you keep the quiet things quiet. You kind of just power through. And, you know, like as a player, like in most of these situations, they're trying to, you know, get this money for the one opportunity they have in their life to accomplish that. And you're trying to help them do that. And, you know, our job, like, you know, I'm sure everybody on this call would agree, like 85 to 90% of this money is earned by these players in general. Our job, the reason we're paid to do this and the reason each of us is good at this is to maximize that last 10 to 15% and get it. And that's a hard battle sometimes. But look, like we make 3% of their commission, you know, on commission contracts to do that because that's what we're really good at. And it's really that last 10 to 15%. And I think you see the difference when you have somebody who's good at that and understands that. And look, there's a public battle at times. All right. So like, that's a good segue too to like the whole idea of owners crying poor, which again, like I'll repeat this because I think it's an important point. I think you guys would agree with this, right? Like that television deal, 11 years, 113 billion billion with a B like, uh, that is like, like, Oh, oh that, that is just like, it's not even like, like, not even like in worth discussing the difference between that and what a single player makes. So like how often did the cash argument come up for you guys this year? I mean, Mike, we can start with you, you know, cause you negotiated Tooney's deal, Brandon here from you on this too, negotiating Leonard's deal. Like how much did the whole argument of cash come up and how many teams were saying, you know, like because of the pandemic, because we didn't have fans in the stands in the fall, we just, don't have the cash on hand to do these sorts of things. Well, it's interesting because it used to be teams would complain about cap and then there was plenty of cap space. And so their complaint turned to cash. <laughs> this year was both. And so I think it was Brandon that, that said there was haves and haves nots, have nots. So um, I don't know. It didn't, it, it, it it's come up a little bit. Um, I, it's funny. I had Joe Tooney and then I have a lot of guys that are probably closer to the minimum. So I didn't have the four to $7 million group that, that Dave and Sean have. And so I didn't hear the cash quite as much, but I've definitely heard it in the last couple of years, uh, much more than I heard it, you know, six, eight, 10 years ago, where it was back then it was still more cap related. Brandon. Um, I did not. We heard a little bit of cash talk in terms of, uh, signing bonus deferral, like in terms of paying out the bonuses, but um, not really. It wasn't the cash was not a big thing. I mean, I think maybe some teams tried that route, but it was definitely more cap. Uh, you would hear uh, in, in general. I mean, when it comes to the, the what the owners making money, I mean, like people got to get serious about the amount of money that these teams are really making in the NFL. It's not they're not losing. We're not talking about a deficit in anything. Maybe not making as much, but. uh these teams are the teams are continuously growing their their revenues and their monies, and the players just want we just want our fair share. So I'm not I wasn't buying it from anybody who was selling it. So maybe maybe they were trying to sell it to me, but I it was falling upon deaf ears if it was. Okay, um, where I want to wrap up with you guys is just kind of on the future and like how you think that we're all going to come out of this. Um, I'm not predicting, I'm not asking you to predict what's going to happen with COVID and all of that, but assuming, you know, things go according to plan over the next few months, um, 
And the NFL is a little more normal in 2022 or 2021 than it was in 2020. Um, What are all of you guys telling your players as far as what to expect? Dave, we'll start with you here as far as. Well, the biggest question is, are we going to have OTAs? And I'm sure Sean and Brandon and Mike (laughs) have gotten that question ad nauseum. The players loved last year from the standpoint of not having to go to the offseason program and not having to move to a city where they don't live full time and being able to be their wives and their kids and, and, you know, having a lot more free time than normal. So, and, and it worked. I mean, we made it through a season the, the quality of the game, I don't think suffered dramatically. Obviously there were some games that had some suffering because of COVID and some things like that, but I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic. The league realizes that having guys in the building for 16 weeks, you know, is relatively useless from the standpoint of, of, developing talent now once you get the rookies in the building you know i do agree that in order to get the rookies up to speed you know they probably need at least a four or six week onboarding process uh but i i know that a lot of the coaches hate me for saying that and the coaches that i represent hate that because they want control and they want their guys in the building i do think we'll see 50 to 75 percent minimum in stands we might even get to 100 percent uh vaccinations are ramping up around the country so it sounds like the draft is going to happen. I'm sure you guys yeah. have a high draft pick um, and they're getting, you know, they're talking about coming to Cleveland and things like that. Uh, and so I think that that'll be exciting. I do know from a financial standpoint, there are some teams that are going to continue to cry poor into next season. I've already, I just got to with the team that just basically told me, well, the cap's not going to go up that much next year. Um, I know that for us, and I think Sean was on the NFLPA call, and I think Mike was, Brandon, I don't know if you were, but I know that the biggest thing that I wanted in, in 2021 was to have a 2022 cap number because I thought that we would be able to plan better and do bigger deals based on knowing that there would be at least a 15 or 20% growth going forward. And, and I'm disappointed that the NFLPA, tremendously disappointed, that the NFLPA and the owners didn't come up with that. You know, having to do this every year and play the machination game where you go to the combine and, oh, I heard it's 190. Oh, I heard it's 193. Oh, I heard it's 199. And then you see bodies start hitting the floor with teams cutting guys and trading guys and dumping salaries was really disappointing to me to not have that for next year. But I do expect, you know, we'll be back in the in the mid-190s, maybe 200, low 200s. And then 2023, you know, hopefully there's just this incredible influx of cash and capital because of the new TV deals. And, and hopefully the richer get richer and the players get even more money into the pool. I will I will piggyback on that and say that it included this year when a team is trying to do a deal early. I'm not interested because we don't know what the cap's going to be. And they're trying to prey on our players with the with the media saying that the cap's going to be lower than it maybe potentially is. Now, this year it was low, but we don't know. And we do know we have this influx of billions of dollars coming in the league soon, so we don't know what's going to happen next year. So when teams try and, you know, almost strong-arm us into doing deals early, literally it just goes in one ear and out the other at this point. Yeah, yeah. Can, so, I, add one, yeah, Robert, go ahead. can I add one point to that? Yeah. I think you got to mm-hmm. look at where we were this year, like, the league took basically a three and a half to four billion dollars and really like from what they projected and really the future's so bright for the next two, three, four years, they're not really going to take a significant loss this year. Like David said, like 
with vaccines and everything, we're going to be close to, you know, full stadiums everywhere. And then you look at it a year, two, three years down the road with the amount of money on the TV deal. And then these other two deals with gambling and then the technology type deals, like there's so much money in this league under this new CBA for owners. They've already taken the loss of COVID in this one season. So they're going to be flush with cash. The question is, does that trickle to the players? Right. And you know what, Brandon, I'd love to ask you about that too, because you've got a guy who's in it and Allen Robinson, who obviously would have tremendous market value if he was out there. Um, is, you know, your advice to him sit tight, you know, because things are going to recover and it could look a lot better for you a year from now. So we don't really have to do anything right now. Like just sort of like what Mike said. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would say so. I mean, when you're franchise tagged, you don't really have too many options anyway. Um, yeah. and, and if you're not close to getting a deal done with the team, um, then I think your option is obviously you, you're going to, you're going to have a tendency to look forward. Um, I'm looking at 2023 as a very important year. And I think that I think I think next year could be the have nots could be a little I mean, a little less than this past year. But I think the haves, if you got a guy who's at the top of the market, you have the leverage. Um, you got to get those guys paid. Those guys have to the ones who are good enough to reset the market have to reset it. Um, and I just I, I look at what the NBA did when they had the new TV money coming in. And I think that that's what it's going to look like for us. And. Maybe it's the optimism agent in me, but I, I truly believe we're going to see rec like just completely crushing the market and the floors are going to go up. And also, the, you know, the ceilings are really they're they're um, they don't even exist when you have the right kind of guy. 2023 is going to be a very interesting year uh, in terms of the amount of cash I think will be going in. So um, I say all that to say, look, if you got to have you got to get them paid. <laughs> regardless of year. I think it's only going up from here. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting too, guys, like, and I'll leave you this. Like I, I remember when I was doing reporting on like them borrowing back against future years, right? Like, so knowing that the cap's going to go up in 23, 24, why not just take 10 million off and put it in 2021 or put it in 2022. And, uh, I think, I think you guys like anybody who wants to respond to this can respond to this. Cause I'd love to see what your response would be. I was told that there were certain owners that viewed that as an interest-free loan that they were not interested in giving the players. I'm not sure I understood the question. <laughs> there wasn't one, Brandon. Uh -huh. He just wants to hear us I just get want, fired up. I just want to hear your response to that. That the idea, <laughs> like the idea of like, like, because it's like, like that's the whole thing, right? Like that the idea that borrowing back against future years is giving an interest-free loan to the players. The quote that I heard, Albert, or should I call you Emily, since it's your wife's name on your Zoom? Yeah. Uh, the quote she that appreciates I heard, that. The quote that I heard from a, from a team was, I I guess I can curse, right? Because it's a podcast. Yeah. yeah. We're not fucking millennials. We're not pushing our debt into the future. We're going to take it all and make the players eat it now. That was literally, I wrote it down. That was literally a direct quote from an owner to me 10 days before the cap number was set. I have the paperwork right in front of me because I have my free agency notes because I'm doing a deal right now. That's I, have, I, I have a quote from a team president. People always overestimated how much owners care about keeping their own players. Hundred percent. Wow, couldn't be couldn't be better said, Sean. Yeah, 
That's that's insane. Yeah, and and like I think the one thing that I hope everybody takes from this um, is look, we all grew up rooting for laundry, right? Like we all root for teams and everything else. Just remember, like in these sorts of situations, the underdog ain't the team. The underdog ain't the GM. The underdog's not the head coach. The underdog is the guy wearing the jersey that you're watching on Sunday. And so if you if you like to root for underdogs, that's that's who it is in these situations. I really appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, Brandon Parker, Sean Kiernan, Dave Canner, Mike McCartney. This is normally in a normal podcast where I would give out people's Twitter handles so everybody can follow them, but I don't think you guys want that, right? It's it's Mike McCartney at Cowboys.net. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, all right. Really appreciate you guys coming out. All right. Thank you to Brandon. Thank you to Mike. Thank you to David. Thank you to Sean. That was fantastic. At least I thought it was. I really like doing those round type round table type shows. You guys know where to get me. Get me your feedback on whether or not you want more of them. We're going to jump into the six pack. You guys know how that works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, that means you get a like. I hit the little heart button and you get an answer here on the podcast. And if I don't get to your question here, Chances are I might have gotten it to it on the uh, in the mailbag, which is up every Wednesday at the MMQB.com. Question number one is from Pat's fan. That's at Dale 0714-9987. Having that many numbers in the back of your Twitter handle can be sometimes a little bit of a bad sign. Question from Pat's fan 14. I think you'd probably go by Dale now. The Ra- now that the Raiders have reworked Mariota's contract, is Carr on the trading block? No, Pat's fan. I do not think David Derek Carr is on the trading block. I almost called him David there. My understanding is that it would take a serious upgrade for the Raiders to move off of Derek Carr. I've sort of explained this in the past. It's not unlike where Jimmy Garoppolo is in San Francisco now, where if there was a significant upgrade out there, I think the Raiders would very much look at it. It's why they kicked tires a couple of years ago on Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins um, and Drew Locke when they had the fourth overall pick, which wound up being Colin Farrell. Um, you know, so I, I think that they would definitely look at the idea of an upgrade, but that hasn't been available to them. There's no sign it's going to be available to them this offseason. And so I think Derek Carr is going to be their starting quarterback in week one. And the question is what that means for Mariota. Well, you know, I think Marcus Mariota benefits from playing another year for John Gruden. Say what you will about him as a team builder. He is still a very good quarterbacks coach. They've got a good, healthy environment for quarterbacks to develop there. Um, you know, and I, I I think it does sort of make it easier, too, for the Raiders to trade Marcus Mariota. Part of the reason it was tough for them to move him was because he had a contract that not only had a $10 million base, it was also um, worth up to $18 million if he becomes a starter. So I think this allows Marcus Mariota to sort of move forward with a little bit more certainty, but it also gives Vegas the chance to trade him, and if the chance to trade him means a starting job somewhere else, that'd be good for him. Question number two from JT Barzak. That's at JT Barzak. Is there still a deal to be made with Seattle for Russell Wilson for the Bears on either draft night or after June 1st? Wilson hasn't come out and said he wants to be a Seahawk for life. Seattle has been quiet. They have a mere three picks in the draft, and maybe if they got Darnold, they would move on from Russell. JT, I'm not going to rule out anything in the Russell Wilson thing. Like I, I you know, I'm not going to stand here – um, on whatever it is, March 23rd, and tell you Russell Wilson will be a Seahawk week one. I just think this is too volatile a situation, or at least it's been too volatile a situation. 
over the last two months. So we'll see what happens. I still think the likelihood is, is that he's on the Seahawks uh, in 2021. And I think chances are he's on another team either in 2022 or 2023. But that would not stop me if I was the Bears from asking. And as for your question about doing it after June 1st, I understand why, because it would you know mitigate the cap crunch that um, trading Russell Wilson would create for Seattle. The problem with trading him after June 1st is now you're talking about trading assets you know, and draft picks that are nearly a year away, and you don't know where those assets are going to be. So the Bears are trading their first-round pick in 2022. Seahawks don't know where it is, where that pick is going to be. And chances are, if Russell Wilson's their quarterback, it might wind up. I mean, they were a playoff team last year. Russell Wilson's their quarterback. That might wind up being the 28th, 29th pick. I don't know why you would do that unless things really went the wrong way with Russell. Question number three from Kevin Crutchfield. That's at West Trey Knight. Do you believe Pittsburgh will look to draft their quarterback in the future this year, or do you think they will hope to roll with Haskins for at least a year? Davis, Kellen Mond could be good in Canada's offense. Uh, you said Davis Mills or Kellen Mond could be good in Canada's office. Hey, Kevin, I think the, the Steelers are going to look at it. My radar would be up based on um, on, on Kevin Colbert's re- relationships at Alabama. And there was you know one little element of the uh, Minka Fitzpatrick trade a couple of years ago because of his relationships at Alabama. It wouldn't surprise me. They kicked the tires pretty hard on Mac Jones. They won't have a shot at the top four. Those are going to be way out of their reach. But I certainly could see them taking a swing on Mac Jones late in the first round or, like you said, Maybe a Davis Mills, maybe a Kellen Mond, maybe a Jamie Newman there in rounds two or three. And the beauty of doing something like that is that you really don't paint yourself in any sort of corner where you are, you don't paint yourself in any sort of corner where it's like next year, we're definitely not taking one. You keep your flexibility while you're developing a guy and getting some answers on the rookie that you brought into the building. Question number four from Brian is at Brian 07628819. Lots of numbers on these handles this week, which isn't a great sign. Doesn't it make sense for the Jets to trade down and get another one for next year? That would give them three ones. If Sam works out, great. But if he doesn't, the Jets would be in a great spot to trade for Watson later since it doesn't appear to be possible before this year's draft. It's an interesting way to look at it. And I understand what you're saying about Watson. I still think that the likelihood is that they take Zach Wilson with the second pick. Um, and I think part of the problem with going forward with Sam Darnold, if you aren't sure on him now after three years, like I don't know when you're going to be sure on him. And that situation in New York is already a loaded one. Um, the people in the building now have no ha, weren't the ones who initially invested in in Sam Darnold. Todd Bowles was the head coach, and uh, and uh, and Mike McCagnan was the general manager. Those guys are gone, and now you got Joe Douglas and, and Robert Sala. So there's that. There's everything that goes along with playing in New York. There's the way that he's played the last couple of years. I, I just think it's sort of one of those things where everybody needs a fresh start. And again, like this comes back to what I was saying off the top of the show, where after three years, you're sort of at that fork in a road. And it's even worse now because the fifth year options are fully guaranteed, where with Sam Darnold now, you got to look at him and say, if we're going to hold on to him, we've got to guarantee his money for 2000 and 22 and if you're not willing to do that now you got a quarterback in a contract year who can walk for nothing after this year so maybe the bar for him becomes a third round pick because maybe that's what you'd be able to get back in a comp pick but even that seems like less likely so 
I'd say if you can get a three and something else, you think about it. And I think where the Jets are right now is if they could get a two and a player or a two and a th- four or a five, I think they'd probably do it. Question number five, that's from Chad Main. That's at Chad Main five. <clears throat> the gra- draft gamesmanship involving fields is fascinating. What number of the draft will he be selected closer to two or later than seven? I'm going to set the over under Chad at three and a half. Okay. I think Trevor Lawrence goes one. I think Zach Wilson goes two. I think that the Falcons take him at four unless somebody trades up. And this is based on no, like I, I haven't even made all the calls that I'm going to need to make to figure out who might be doing what, who likes who, all that stuff. I just, I look at it and I put the pieces together and I watch Justin Fields for three years and I know scouts who really know him well. And I just, I look at him as a player, the physical ability. I think he's going to run four, low four fours. He says he's going to run four three, but I think he's going to run low four fours at Ohio State next week. Weighs well, 230 pounds. He's accurate. He's tough. He's competitive. Does he need development? Yes, he needs development. There's just so much there to work with. And he's got natural accuracy too, which I think people have sort of come to ignore. So like I look at the whole picture here and I find it hard to believe that he's going to slide somehow slide into the teens. So my feeling is he probably like if I if you had to put a gun to my head right now, and again I haven't made those phone calls, but if you put a gun to my head right now, I say Justin Fields either goes third or fourth overall. And Again, I reserve my right to change my mind on that. Question number six from Matt Ramis. That's at Matt underscore Ramis. Why would the Steelers, or why would Smith-Schuster turn down the Chiefs and Ravens for a Pittsburgh return? It seems both Kansas City and Baltimore would give a player a great shot at a Super Bowl ring because Matt, his priority right now can't be to win a Super Bowl. His priority right now has to be to get paid. He was not a first-round pick coming out. His earnings so far have been relatively modest. And I think the ability to play at the highest level possible is important. And if you look at going to the Chiefs or the Ravens, again, if he was 33, 34, I said, I'd be with you. Go gravy train a ring. You know, your your earning power is at the end. Go get yourself a Super Bowl. I think the priority for Smith-Schuster right now has to be that life-changing second contract. And he had good momentum earlier in his career. Um Towards that, you know, since Antonio Brown's been gone and as the number one, it hasn't quite worked out the way he thought it would. I think he needs to go to the place where he's going to have the best chance to shine. And I think in Baltimore, he'd be competing for the ball with Mark Andrews and with Hollywood Brown to establish himself. And that's a run-based offense. That can be a tough offense for a receiver to shine in. We saw Hollywood Brown actually was a little bit, I would say, disgruntled at points last year. And going to the Chiefs, I mean, like, are you going to be, where are you going to be in the picking, pecking order? Behind Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey for sure. Maybe behind McCole Hardman. I need Sammy Watkins back there. I, I would think Clyde Edwards Alaire is going to be playing a bigger role. And there's only one ball. And so, like, I look at Smith Schuster, he goes back as an established number one to, to Pittsburgh. I personally think it gives him the best chance to go get a big second contract after this season. And so that's why like that's why I see like this as the smart move for Juju Smith-Schuster to take a little less, stay in Pittsburgh. They know him. Ben knows him. He'll get they'll get him the ball. He'll have the best chance to really shine there. I'm going to give you guys a bonus question too. The reason why is because I messed up and I I liked seven questions instead of six. You guys did a good job this week. But this is a guy who asks questions every week, so we will wrap it up with him. 
you guys have heard his name, not who I think, not who you think I am at Don Ridnow or Don asks with all the free agent ads, if Kingsbury doesn't make an improvement, is he in danger? Don, I would say yes. I would say if you miss th- the playoffs three years in a row, that puts you in a precarious position. And it's going to be interesting too. All the stuff I said about Daniel Jones is true for Kyler Murray too. The Cardinals are going to reach that quarterbacking fork in the road after year three um, in the spring of 2022. So there are a lot of people in that organization who need to perform this year. They've done a lot to try to make it work. They've invested a lot. The owners put, I mean, we'll use Bob Kraft's words here, put capital into it the same way the Giants and Patriots have and bringing in uh, J.J. Watt, bringing in A.J. Green. Um, yeah, I think that there is some pre- a little pressure on the people in Arizona this year. Appreciate you guys coming out as always. You guys know that. And I value your feedback. I want your feedback. We're going to use your feedback. Um, you guys know where to get to me on social media, at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. And you can also leave us a rating and review. That really helps other people find our show. That helps us with the algorithm. I don't know how that works, but that's what they tell me. Um, So please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. And you guys know where to subscribe to my show, right? Well, you can also subscribe to Jenny and Connor's Week Side Podcast. You can also subscribe to Gary Grambling's Monday Morning Podcast on the MMQB NFL Podcast Feed. All three feeds. Week Side Podcast Feed the MMQB NFL podcast feed and my podcast feed, the Albert Breer show feed. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher, tune in Google play, Apple podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We are there same time next week. I'll see you guys then.